Hi everyone, it's Charlie Webster here. Welcome to a new episode of My Sporting Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up the conversation around mental health and mindset in sport and life. Season two is proudly supported by SportingLife.com, ahead of the rest when it comes to unbiased opinion and sports analysis. Today we're heading into the world of football management, something I love. I'm really excited to welcome the Queen's Park Rangers manager, Mark Warburton, to the podcast. Welcome along. Charlie, how are you? Um, I'm very good. Oh, thanks. I'm very good. Thank you. The reason why I said something I'm always fascinated in, not that I have any experience in football management, it's just I find that I love the psychology of it. And I always find it so fascinating getting in depth when it comes to talking to football managers or sports managers. But anyway, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. It's been a really challenging run of fixtures. Everyone's been challenged in a, an unprecedented way, really. But uh, we're nearly there, nearly in the finishing line. So it's um, need to finish the season strongly and then have a good break and start again very quickly. Mm. It, it's funny you said about the players need a good rest. But what about you? I bet you do as well. And the pressure that's on you. And, you know, you, you must focus so much on the players and their welfare. But who manages you and how do you manage yourself in terms of your own mental health? Yes, it's a good question. I think the importance of the staff, I've always placed a huge significance, Charlie, on the quality of the support network, that the staff around the players, so medical, analytics, sports science, coaching, etc., nutrition, psychology, to make sure the players have access to the best people to help them through what are really challenging times anyway, let alone in this virus hit season. In terms of myself, I, I'm, I'm, I try and delegate wisely. I think that's just, you know, I'm saying that from the city, I learned that the best managers delegate well. Uh, and get the best staff possible. And that's my role. to, to I, I see it as creating an environment which is conducive for staff to develop and players to develop. If I could put that structure in place, I think everything moves forward nicely mm. uh, and you've done, you've done the hard part of your job, Charlie. I think delegation is harder than it sounds. Would you say that? It is because you can easily be seen as um, giving up responsibility, you know, or basically not working hard enough. But you've got to make sure you trust your staff. You know, so if you have a, a medical guy on board and a physio makes a recommendation about loadings or training, etc., or pulling a player out, you have to trust him. There's no point writing, you know, rough shot over decision from here from someone, one member of your staff. You have to trust them. You have to give them responsibility, and they know in turn the good guys know Charlie that they're accountable as well. Because mm. what I find is people want the responsibility, not the accountability. So yeah. if you can make sure. They know how the process works. They know that you trust them, but they also know there's a consequence to their decision. Then it, I think you're in a good place. Mm. I, I was thinking of it in terms as well. It's hard to delegate because of you wanting to control things. I'm not saying you, I just mean in, in general. I think there's an element of wanting to make sure a manager has control over everything. So in terms of delegation, also you being able to let go, is that something that you find? Yeah, you have to. I mean, I think managers by the very nature have that control obsession in them. You know, they want, yeah. they want to be doing organising. But I think it's very important you also recognise not to spread yourself too thin. If you're trying to cover all areas, when I think I hear people say, why do you have a director of football or a sporting director? You have to. Otherwise, you simply spread yourself too thin and dilute the quality of your end product. You have to make sure that it's quality, not quantity. And focus on what you have to do. It's about the team. It's about the players, individual generic needs, about the staff. Create that environment. There's other areas you have to delegate or have to rely on other individuals and trust them. If you don't, there's no point doing the well. I think there's a lot of strength in that as well, knowing that you need all these pieces. Like it's that community, isn't it, to be able to to succeed rather than just yourself and you bring other brains to it you're always gonna be better mark you mentioned in the city for so for those that don't know you worked as a trader um did you work on the floor 
We worked in the currency markets. Yeah, we were on the coalface, so to speak. So we would trade. We would trade currencies. Um, but as I've mentioned many times, Charlie, it's so similar to a dressing room. I mean, it was male-dominated early on, and that changed, thankfully, later. Um, but early on, it was a very competitive environment. You know, it was one that demanded communication. Very competitive. Mm. Very, very competitive. You know, Testosterone-filled. If you did well, you got rewarded. If you didn't, you lost your job. People always wanted your seat, you know, because you're, in a, you're in, a, yeah. in a job, Charlie, where if you did well, you had access to good rewards. You were well-paid and bonuses were significant. So people wanted that. But it's very similar to a football shirt. Everyone will always want the, guy, the guy's shirt. So it's that competitive environment, dealing with the stress, dealing with the pressure, and almost thriving off the challenge as opposed to being crushed by it. And the right people absolutely embracing any type of challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think, I've, I mean, I'm not a trader, but I've been on the floor a few times and it's I feel like it's so black and white in a sense where it is so aggressive and is so competitive because it has to be. And it was interesting, you said there's an element of every manager, and I believe this of every high achiever or every professional athlete, you've got to have like a slight kind of obsession with it to be able to be where you are now. What were the key things you learned then that you took into your role as a manager and your other roles that you've had? I think you're dead right what you say. I think every athlete has that selfish streak as well. They want to do well. They want to win. Um, and that's why the city, the financial market, I've said to Edmund, the players many times, they would have loved that environment. It's obviously changed now in terms of what happened after the crash and, and everything else. But the, but the fact is they would have loved that environment. And what I learned was the, the need for teamwork. There was no point me making X amount if a colleague or two colleagues lost three times the amount because net-net we were down on the day. It was about the teamwork, working together. You know, if you wanted to buy dollars, we bought them together. If someone was struggling, we helped he or her get out of that situation. So the communication, the teamwork, the risk-reward, the pressure that you were under every day, the hours that you worked, the intensity of the work, all of these things – you can take into football. You know, whether you're on a touchdown, people always say, what was harder, the, the markets or football? They were two very, very similar environments, two very similar arenas, Charlie, because you were constantly, you know, you're sitting there at work, it'd be very, very quiet, and then something happened. You know, it was, mm. I don't know, Iraq invasion or something happened. You know, the worst I can remember, obviously, you know, terrible, terrible, was 9-11. But you're sitting yeah. there quietly. I remember very, very clearly your AIG and that type of, you know, long like that event with so many implications, a tragedy of such an event, but how the consequences of the financial markets, we never left the office for two days, you know, two and a half days because of the implications, but you had events, you had nature not so big as that, all the time coming through, figures coming out where you had to be, you had to be in focus, you had to be concentrated on your job. If you didn't, you paid the price. And I find that very similar to football. If you don't focus and analyse and prepare well, Charlie, you get found out and you lose the game. I suppose you have to be reactive as well to so much uncertainty. It's interesting you were talking about that, which, you know, 9-11, an awful tragedy. And it made me think of the pandemic in a way because there's so much uncertainty. And I think that's what people who aren't used to it have found it really difficult to cope because um, I think as an element, we all try and control everything. So we like to have this certain path. How how much has that helped you during this time? Has it made you approach things differently? Yeah, it has. I think um, I was in the city a long time, don't forget. I was in there for 23, 24 years. Mm. So it was, a, it was a long stint and I worked my way up and I was very fortunate to work at some big banks, RBS, Bank of America, AIG and the Muir's big trading houses uh, and had good responsibility. But you had to, you did right, you know, you had to react to certain news coming out. Um, I was always intrigued. I said to, to, my, to my staff, I'd look at, we'd have big numbers would come out at 1.30, 8.30 New York time. And it might be, for example, GDP domestic produce, it might be trade numbers coming out. And you knew the market would be really volatile. 
it would react so violently to the news coming out one way or the other. And it could be very, very you know, uh, difficult trading conditions. I looked at my senior traders on the left and they saw it as a chance to make money and they couldn't wait for the number to come out. And the other traders to the right saw it as the glass half empty and we could get, we could lose our money here. We could lose our months here. They saw the pessimistic side and the really good traders saw the optimistic mm-hmm. side. And that's like football now. You know, do you look at this run of five games in 14 days as, oh my God, look, look, here, way down. Or do you say, here's a chance. We're fitter and stronger than the opposite. Here's a chance to go and get points. So it's that outlook, it's that optimistic outlook, seeing opportunity, which I hope I've been able to take from the city mm-hmm. uh, and use, use wisely where possible. Sporting Live prides itself on being ahead of the rest by providing a rivaled analysis, opinion, debate and statistics for the sports you love. Follow Sporting Live for the best preview, stats and live horse racing and football score services. Visit sportinglive.com or download the free app for Apple and Android devices. You're talking of run of games, you know, you're in the championship, which is absolutely relentless but I also find um I'm a Sheffield United supporter which we're probably not going to be in the Premier League for much longer um that there's this expectation of that you should be in the Premier League you should be in the playoff and and the championship is there's so many good sides that are all vying for that you know two spots um how do you deal with that how long have you got this question? Because this is a great question Charlie <laughs> I look at it I I speak about this regularly about expectation so I look at it and I've, I've worked at, when I was at Brentford, I was there for nine, five years and there was no expectation. We came up with walls in terms of promotion, but there was no expectation. In fact, we were favourites to go down. So we could go and play our football with zero fan expectation, just great support behind us. And then you go to Rangers, you know, Glasgow Rangers, and of course their European pedigree, the size of the club, their global reach and the constant expectation, a really steep learning curve. And then you go to Nottingham Forest, twice European champions, who haven't been in the Premier League for nine, 20 odd years. But you listen to the fan base, and we're, we're, we're a top Premier League club. Yeah. And I'm not being sarcastic in any way. I'm not no, being but it's true. We're a magnificent yeah. club. But all I ever heard was Brian Clough. It was 40 years ago, Charlie. Mm. And I'm saying we've got to move forward. We've got to change the fan base, et cetera. But they were stuck in that time. And I think every manager has battled that. And then you go from there and you're looking and I'm saying now, well, how many people expect to be in? I hear like better fans form last night and every fan is passionate about their club. But you hear them say, how do we push on now to where, to where we should be at the Premier League? Well, I look at it and go, well, at the bottom right now, we've got Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, Birmingham, Huddersfield. These are big clubs, big, big clubs. You look at Middlesbrough, all of these clubs have uh, have an expectation to be in the Premier League, but no divine right to be there. Mm. And you're always dealing as a manager, as a coach, as a CEO, you're dealing with that fan expectation. You know, we need to go and invest to make sure we get in the Premier League. How much do you have to spend to get in the Premier League now? And you look at the, the budget disparity between a, a Watford, say, or a Norwich and, and Wickham, for example. Now, Wickham have done exceptionally well mm. with the budget they have. Gareth's done a magnificent job, but their budget will be a fraction a yeah. fraction of so many people in the same division, but the expectation will still be there. Mm. So I just think if you can manage that expectation, and I said to our head of uh, media, the only way I can see of doing it is improving communication to the fans, being honest with them. Yeah. And I don't think sometimes, Charlie, they like what you have to say. But you've got to be realistic. We have no divine right to be in the Premier League. In terms of the crowd size, where would we fit in the championship? 
you know, 14th, 15th, maybe that time. So why do we have a divine right to be there? And of course, we're going to try and push and every club will say the same and develop a squad that can go as high as it possibly can. But there's no divine right. As long as you can realise that and remove that unrealistic expectation, then you're in a much better place. But right now, I think too many managers, coaches and players, staff are dealing with the unrealistic yeah. expectation. It's a really interesting point. I don't think it's spoken about enough where you can be a fan from any of those clubs you mentioned pretty much and have that same thing where you look at your history and say, I mean, gosh, I've even done it myself. You know, when Sheffield United were in the Championship, well, we should be in the Premier League because look at our fan base and things like that. But then if you look at the budget, it doesn't reflect on that. Do you, How do you deal with the frustration, not of that, but of, of of the la- the limit around budgets because you hear criticism for managers where it's like why why didn't they bet buy that player and I've heard it within various different clubs and then you look at the budget and you're like well they couldn't afford it so it wasn't necessarily the manager's choice but then it comes on you do, do you find that you have to balance that frustration or do you do you get frustrated no you do you have to balance it but again I think it comes down to communication so you'll hear why did we go and get uh, Jordan Hugill you know, uh, it shows a lack of a, a lack of desire, a lack of intent by the board or by the club. How do we respond to that, Charlie? Do we say nothing, in which case such like, social media platforms will circulate and build on that? Or do we come out and say, we simply haven't got the budget to buy such a player? And then they'll say, but what about our owners? Well, we're limited by FFP, you know, profit and sustainability. We've got to adhere to the rules, especially after QPR's pass, for example. Yeah. We've got to adhere to the rules. The, the fans don't want to hear that. They want to hear this really ambitious owners are then worried about lack of season ticket sales because fans become, you know, disinterested. So everything's a balancing act. But if you don't give clarity communication to a fan, so if I'm a Sheffield United board member and I tell you the honest truth, I'm sorry, you just simply can't afford that player. Our budget is probably 14th in the, you know, in, so Sheffield United now, what does Chris, what did Chris have in terms of Premier League budget? It probably was a bottom budget. Yeah, it, it was, probably yeah. was. You know, he was always, he did a magnificent job you know, I know Chris very well, huge respect. What a job he did the year before. And because it's slightly difficult and they lost Jack O'Connor and other players this year, he's paid the price. But the actual fact is, tell the fans where it is budget-wise, what you're dealing on and batting against, mm. and the reality of the situation. Hopefully, the true fans, Charlie, give you a little bit of, little bit of slack and a bit more time. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to look at things. I personally would prefer that communication. I think um, talking of you mentioned Chris Wilder, talking of the merry-go-round, I suppose, of managers. How do you, as a man, is it something that comes into your mind? Do you just accept it as part and parcel of the job that there is that one in, one out a lot of the time? Yeah, it is. I just think what other business acts like this. You know, you look at certain clubs who will go and spend I don't know, hundred million pounds in the Premier League, for example, in the, in the transfer window, and change their manager three months later. And I'm thinking, what other business would invest that much money hmm. and make such a you know such a significant change so quickly? Is there any I, other business? Is it so unique no, to football? No. I can't think of anything. No, Charlie. I said I was actually talking to a player yesterday who came in a bit frustrated about something. I was chatting to him, and I said that the way football works. I remember going to AIG um, when they were the biggest American company, bigger than Citibank. This was going back in 2000, 2001, I think it was. And when I first went in, uh, one of the senior partners said. Take the first year to settle in. And obviously, I was keen to go straight away. You're competitive and you want to trade. But he said, no, no, get, you know, just set yourself in, get used to the way we price, understand our customers. You'll go to New York or Hong Kong or Singapore and get to know the guys. But use that first year to settle into the company. And I'm thinking at football, you might have three months and you're gone. 
in that here we are in this top financial, you know, top tier, Premier League, so to speak, of the financial markets. And they're saying, take a year to settle in. And there's a different approach. You know, they give people time. That's one commodity that other businesses do afford their, their senior staff. And yet football, you can be gone in three or four or five months, mm. which is quite incredible. When you see clubs have had four managers in a season, how on earth can that possibly work, Charlie? But, but we're not surprised, unfortunately. Mm. I don't think it does work. I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> um, right. You're right. And people, the clubs that have stuck by their staff, I remember Lee Johnson going through a tough one, Dean Smith of them going through a tough one. Yeah. They come through it and they show their quality and do a magnificent job. But you're going to have tough times. You're going to have players out through injury or suspension. You're going to have a dip in form. You're going to have the randomness of the game go against you for a run of games. And you can't pay the price for your job, surely, in that short period. Personally, does it does it bother you? Or is it, it doesn't. No, I, I think I'm probably a bit unfair to say that. I'm, I'm 58 years old. I've, I've been very lucky to do okay in terms of my career. Um, so I'm probably slightly older. I said to someone the other day, if I was 38, finishing a playing career and coming to football, I'd be far more anxious. I don't see enough jobs for good British coaches, for example. They do their pro license and where do they go? And all these things will bother me. But now I think I've maybe got a, an older, just a dinosaur head on saying that, you know, all you can do is your best your best you can do every day. I, I learned in the city that my be- the best boss I ever worked for, He, I learned so much from him, but he said, all you can do is the best you can do every day. Mm. And they were saying that way before football. Now I see be the best you can be every day is a football slogan. That was back in the 90s and 80s. They were saying, just be the best you can be. And I remember the best boss, that's what he said. You can have good days and not so good days. You know, sometimes whatever you touch goes wrong. But as long as you're focused and concentrated over the course of 10 days, you'll get seven right. And that's all I'm going to ask of you. Mm-hmm. And that's the same in football. You know, so I've got that sort of approach. Go into work. Give it everything you've got. If it's not good enough and they sack you, well, then so be it. But you, at least you can wake up with no regrets. Mm. Is that How do you cope with those bad days then? Is that something you say to yourself or what have you learned over you know your career because I can imagine when you were younger maybe it was different how you would approach those bad days to now yeah very different very different um I think the the trading side of it you know uh, try to explain how how your mindset could work so say for example your budget to make in a year was 10 million dollars so that was your budget to make so I look at it and go right two months you have holidays Christmas etc so over 10 months I've got to make a million dollars a month I've got to make 250 a week. I've got to make 50 grand a day. So my mind thinks very much like that. Mm. 50 grand a day. So if I make 75 on a Monday, I'm 25 up. If I make 75 on a Tuesday, I'm now 50 up. I'm a day I'm a day in lieu, so to speak. My other good colleague or good friend would look at it completely different. Might do nothing for the first seven days, put a position on and make two and a half million dollars over the next week. But he, his approach mm. was very, very different to mine. So, you know, and I would, and if I had a bad run, I would be, I'd be so hard on myself. Now, if we have a bad run of form, I look back at what we've we done. Have we, did we prepare well? Did we analyse well? Did we coach well? Did we do this, etc.? If I'm happy, then there's nothing more we can do. For about 20 years, Charlie, I'd be beating myself up and being so frustrated and whole, not so hard to be with. I was a pain in the backside to be with because I couldn't understand, you know, what did I do wrong and I'm blaming myself. No, sometimes you've got to accept things don't go your way. The news comes out, you're caught with the wrong position, you lose your week's money or your month's money, nothing you can do, nothing you can do. All you can do is put your head down start again. I think it's really common um, outside of football as well for people to beat themselves up um, a lot <laughs> and when things don't go right. In fact, so you know, I was even messaging somebody today and you know, they're in their 50s and they were like, oh my God, I made this mistake and they were just really beating themselves up all the time and not like I was trying to get them to see that 
you know, all that's going to do is make them feel worse and that it's actually okay to make a mistake. But, you know, football is a great example of that because it's really unforgiving. How do you cope with losses? Um, you know, we, we spoke yeah. to a few different managers actually. And I remember speaking to, he was brilliant, rather than boss Paul Warren. And he, he said, he just really, he really gets upset <laughs> and struggles to cope with the losing. Yeah, and everyone's different, Charlie. And the advice you gave your friend this morning is dead right, but it's so hard. The advice is right. Can they take it on board is the question. Mm. Can they heed the advice? I, I think for me, um, the trouble with football is you go to work in front of 20,000 people. So I say about people say, I want to be a football player. Don't ever forget these players go to do their job, their job of work in front of a large audience. Everything they do is on social media and analysed by Sky or BT Sport, whatever it may be, and every mistake, and then they go out in society. You know, they're out, they're seen having a few drinks, they're, they're clicked, and they live a, a life which can be either great or can be so, so difficult and so challenging. And if, for example, you're a player having a tough time, um, how do they then deal with it? They're having a mm-hmm. tough time, they're not scoring as a striker, for example, and they're seen out in the town and all the press that comes with it. So from a manager's point of view, you know, everything we do is analysed. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'm the same as Paul Warren. I do get frustrated. Obviously, you drive home from the ground and you, what did we do wrong? What about this? Did I pick the right team or was the formation right? But as I say earlier, maybe I'm older than Paul. But I look at it and say, well, right now, as long as I'm comfortable that I've done everything right mm-hmm. and chat to the staff. And I'll always go to my staff, for example, uh, John, what do you think on a Monday? What's your team? I'll ask Neil Banfield, what's your team? The goalkeeping coach, go, what's your team? And on, the, on a Wednesday, what's your team? See if they've changed it because of training. See if they're seeing what I'm seeing and vice versa. I know what I want. But I'm really keen to hear their thoughts and their input. And, I, and I'll change my mind if I think they're right because everyone's then involved in it. But lo- as long as we go through a process, Charlie, and we, we, I can look at it and say, you know what? We prepared well for the game. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, we lost 2-1 or we didn't perform. Well, then you have to take it. Mm. There's a few players I've been talking to recently. I won't mention their names um, because they haven't come out yet. And they spoke about preparation and how at least if they know they've um, prepared really well, then they can walk away and go, well, I I did everything I can. And sometimes we can't control these different circumstances or what somebody else does. I just want to touch upon, you said about social media and it's something that's come up a lot um, because it's really changed the environment when you're in public eye and especially in football, like you said, they're kind of on the pitch and scrutinized. But I know for yourself that you also um, had that scrutiny too. And you mentioned about expectation. I could kind of want to take you back um, for when you were manager at Glasgow Rangers in 2015, which is a huge, huge job to manage either one of those teams, Rangers or Celtic. Can, you know, can you describe the level of pressure you were on and what it was like for you when you, um, you know, a lot of people will know you got a lot of social abuse afterwards, um, including death threats and texts because your number was leaked. What was that like for you? Um, well, firstly, it was a privilege to manage that club, Charlie. That's the truth of it. You know, they are a giant global brand, the two Glasgow clubs. The old firm games were magnificent occasions. And it really was, I look back at that and I, I said to my son, if I can't enjoy those those games, I shouldn't be in football because it really was a privilege. We all love the sport, but they, they are some of the biggest games in world football. So to be involved in such a capacity was a true privilege. Um, the, the the first year in Glasgow, the, the chairman made it very clear, promotion was non-negotiable. I don't mind that. That goes back to the city. There's a start target that you have to achieve. We achieved that. We won the league training cup and we beat Celtic in semi-finals, get to the Scottish Cup final as well. So the first year's report was very good. Then, of course, you now have the old firm. 
you're now up there with Celtic. Now, here we go to budgets again. Uh, and we had a budget, I think, probably 20% of the rivals at the time. And we had to have it. I, mean, I knew that. And beating them in the semi-final the year before was a great day out for the Blue supporters, but the worst thing we could do in terms of expectation. So you knew that they had a team packed of internationals. Now the pressure really grew. And it was interesting that I landed in Glasgow my first week there and a really wise reporter said, there's always a good cop and a bad cop in Glasgow. I didn't know what he meant. He said, right, right now, Ronnie Dyler is a bad cop. You're the good cop. Now, Ronnie was, they were ahead of the, the top of the SPFL, Charlie, by six, seven points, wherever it may be. And he was getting dogs abuse every day in the back pages. Now, we be, we, we might win one in a way in a really scrappy game and they say, Rangers romped to victory again, you know, Celtic might win 2-0. Celtic only scored two. They should have scored seven. This type of thing. He, whatever he did was wrong. But then when Brendan arrived, I remember what he said. He said, he came out, he said remember what I told you? Mm. And we drew the opening game with Hamilton. And suddenly, bang, the, the tone changed completely. And you learn. It was a fantastic learning curve for me. But dealing with that pressure and that spotlight then that second year, then we had Joey Barton's situation, and then you had the expectation of fans who thought we should be winning the league. Celtic had their best ever year in their history to go unbeaten. So the gap, we were second, and the gap was there of 20-odd points. Now, the fact was, the, the non-negotiable for third for year three was to get into Europe, which I thought was fair. If you can't get into Europe with Rangers in year three, this was year two, and we were second when we were sacked. But then you have to deal with that. Well, actually, it came out that we resigned. We never did. That's common. That's common knowledge now. We had no idea what was going on. So, of course, your number gets leaked. And I saw that. And then the abuse started. I literally drove home from Scotland, China. The truth is, I couldn't phone my wife, who went mad when I got here. I pulled in the driveway because my phone was constantly beep, 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 mm. beep, beep, with, with texts coming in, either from a, you know, Rangers fans who thought I'd walked out in the club, which you would never, ever do, or from Celtic fans who gleefully had my number and given all sorts of abuse down the phone. So, as a, an older man, you can deal with that. I was, I'm always more worried about the younger players, how they deal with it. I've got a son who's 26, 27, and I'm thinking, if that was my son, how would he deal with that level of abuse? Yeah. You know, and it's so, so hard. And I know we've had a goalkeeper, Joe Lumley, who's a top lad, deal with it. I've seen many players, bright side Samuel, racist abuse, how these guys have to deal with the level of abuse and what makes a person think they have the right, Charlie, to go on a platform and give abuse to a fellow human being. It's beyond me. It really is beyond me. And I think we've got to do so much more. I'm drifting off subject here, but no, no, we've got to do so important. much more because yeah. it's not right. These guys are dealing with a really high stress pressure. Imagine I was doing a dealing in the dealing world. And at the same time, every time I lost money, I'm getting abuse on a social media platform. Yeah. How would I, build, how would I have coped with that? And yet these guys now, many of whom have just turned 20, for example, again, awful abuse. And it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Now, you might turn around and, and say, well, I'll tell you what, don't go on the platform. But they're young. They're, they're younger and they, they live on the phone. This is their world. It's not my world. But they live in that world. They shouldn't accept abuse. Opinion, yes. Mark, you had, a, you had a shocking game today. No problem with that. Don't give me a volley of abuse on a platform because I can't, I can't, A, I can't respond. And B, I know these guys hide behind a keyboard and they just type away. I also know, Charlie, it's probably a very, very small minority of people, maybe 1%, 2% of people are fans that would do this. But still, it can have a devastating impact on too, on too many competitive sportsmen who have enough to deal with right now. Mm. And I think, I think sometimes we look... 
it's awful, but there's this like transactional commodity thing and actually forgetting that they're human being and some people that have mental health and then money gets thrown in and it's like, you know, money isn't about mental health. Money doesn't counter any mental health or any abuse. You know, you said, um, you know, you know, well, I'm, I'm old enough and, and, you know, it kind of be nice for you, but imagine what it was like if it was your son, but I can still imagine that it must've been really hard for you. You know, he's still a human being that has emotions and also your wife having to see you do that. Did it make you think at any point, ah, sod, sod this, like, yeah, you know, I'm putting myself out there and I'm getting this. I've got to be honest. What was, I couldn't control it. That was the angle. So I wanted to come out as a legal situation. I wanted to come out and say, do you honestly think I'd resign for a club like Rangers? This magnificent football institution. And it's a privilege. I've always said I've never changed my story. It's a privilege to manage there and to have some great friends there. And I lived there for two years, really two fantastic years. Do you honestly think I would walk away from this club? But I couldn't answer the questions. Of course, the the, the, the less the more days that pass of you not answering, the greater the abuse. And, and the media up in Glasgow have they, they seem to there's some good guys, Charlie, but there's some guys that seem to have a divine right to lead with you know, speculation and complete fabrication, which would never be tolerated down here. You could never get away with it in English papers. Yet for some reason up there, they get away with it. And it really is a goldfish bowl for a number of reasons. One, because of the, the nature of Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic, but because of the media speculation, the people, the city itself, it's a unique football theatre. And as I say, it has so many good things, but I must say the occasions you, you're highlighting, the abuse side of it, that was tough. I was angry. I was angry. I couldn't respond. I was angry for a long time. Uh, and Brendan actually said to me, take a year off. And I probably should have done, taken six months off. But when Nottingham Forest come calling two weeks later, what do you do? Do you turn down a club of that, of that stature? Because jobs are few and far between. Yeah. It was really hard. And my wife said to me, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, well, how do you, I want to work. I'm, I'm too young not to work. But how do you turn down Nottingham Forest? Mm. In hindsight, Maybe my CV was strong enough. I should have taken a two or three months just to calm down and, and clear my head. But it's hard to do that. I mean, I, I I find that hard because you're like, oh, but but you just don't know. You you need to take these things and like you said, Nottingham Forest is a big club. Um, I just want to ask you about social. Well, actually, I want to. I'll I'll stay on Nottingham Forest. Then I want to ask you something about social media because you mentioned Nottingham Forest. You you left Nottingham Forest and in 2017, and then you were out of work for a period. How hard is that to deal with? Um, you know, somebody that just springs to mind is I know Nigel Atkins. You know, he he's a lovely man, and he was at, he's been out of work for, I think around t- maybe a year and a half, two years, and now he's obviously back in work. How do you deal with those periods? Uh, really tough. I've got to say, I, I left school, played football at 16, 18, went straight in the city and worked all the way through. Then I did my badges, went straight into coaching and the rest you know. I'd never not worked, ever. I think I took a year to go around Europe on my own money to learn about you know, the various academies and the clubs around you. Very fortunate to do that. But I'd never not worked, Charlie. Mm-hmm. And then this happened. you know. And, and again, that, that feeling of anger and frustration. So you go on Google, it reads Nottingham Forest sack Mark Warburton. And then you go, well, hang on, where does it say my KPIs were this? I've hit every single KPI. We're 12th in the table, you know, reduced the size of the squad, went from 36 to 22, reduced the average age, 29 to 22. We've hit every KPI. You know, we, we steady in the league and look to build on after last year, just avoiding relegation. We're 12th. And then you get you get sacked on Christmas on New Year's Eve. And you think, what other profession? But then you're angry again. That yeah. same sentiment I felt after Glasgow because you can't get your point across. It sounds bitter and twisted. It wasn't. You say, hang on a second. 
Now, we stayed up and Blackburn went down. I get sacked and Tony Mowbray gets a new contract. I mean, Tony's a fantastic man, don't get it wrong. Nothing derogatory of Tony there, but that's the, that's the start of reality. Then you face, well, why was he sacked by them? What happened at Rangers? And you don't get looked at for a job. Now, you know, I was, I was like, I'm lucky money-wise. I'm okay, touch wood, and, you know, I've worked hard. So I wasn't worried financially about paying the mortgage or anything like that. I was worried about, I, I like to work. Yeah. The LMA are, are magnificent. I've got to say, League Manager Association, the work done by Richard Bevan and the staff is incredible. Really is. And how they support the managers and coaches is second to none. So they were very, very helpful. And they give you jobs and, you know, webinars to do and presentations to make, etc. But you still feel, hang on a second, I'm out of work here. I'm not sure why. And it's that horrible sentence for me personally, Charlie. I didn't deal with that well. Because I'm thinking, I want to explain myself. You know, I, I, how do people look at me and think of me? Well, he's failed there, failed there. Hang on, no. I've hit all my KPIs. And my old world in the city, hit your KPIs, you're in a good place. In football, hit your KPIs, and it's 50-50 to keep your job. So I, I didn't, I'll be, I hands up, I didn't deal with that very well. Um, and as I say, I had to wait and be patient, turn down one or two, which were not right. Because I knew then that if I chose badly after that, I'd have no chance. There'd be, there'd be dire consequences. So I had to make sure I chose wisely. And then QPR came along. I met with Les and he's back working in London after being away in Glasgow, Nottingham. And it suited. So for me, I was very fortunate. But to get a job now, Charlie, irrespective of your CV or your name or your pedigree, whatever word you want to use, you're very fortunate to get a job now. There's very few jobs available. And look how many good people are not working right now. I think also on a wider context, people will relate to it because of the pandemic and one thing I loved about what you said, and I think you said, oh, I didn't, you, you're angry. And it's like, well, anger's a normal human emotion. Like, I'd be angry. <laughs> like, I think anybody would in that situation. Um, but one I think I loved that you touched upon is actually like, working is so important for your self-worth and for your mental health and for feeling valued and I think when something like that happens it can really knock your confidence um how I don't know how much what did you do to help yourself during that time and to help build your confidence back up to be able to then go and, and do what you're doing at QPR I think uh, a number of things I've always traveled you know so when I had that when I left the city um I will come back to your question but I, I left the city and I, I knew I didn't have enough a deep enough education so I went around and I phoned, um, I literally cold called a number of clubs and got, you know, got pied by all of these various clubs, who are you, go away type thing. And then finally a guy at uh, Sports in Lisbon who's a dear friend called Diego Matos now, works for the, with FIFA, but he was the academy director. He said, if you can get on a plane, I'll come play golf tomorrow and have five hours with me. That five hours became a week of watching Sports in Lisbon. And bearing in mind they produced Figo, Ronaldo, Carisma, Nani, these type of players. Uh, and I spent many weeks in sport in Lisbon. He's still a dear friend. And he introduced me to Ajax. And he, they introduced me to PSV and in turn Barcelona. So I'm going all around these magnificent clubs, learning about youth development, which later down became the Next Gen Series. That I could go in all of these clubs and we did that tournament. But that side of it was very important. So jump forward to losing your job. I went and spent a couple of weeks in Seattle, Seattle Sounders, with a good friend, Damon Roden. I went to New England Revolution with Brad Frieda. I was intrigued by the MLS I was intrigued by how they had written their own rules in terms of players and the transfer market and equal budgets. And so absolutely, I was very close to getting two jobs over there. Um, very, very close. I didn't get them because I didn't speak Spanish and the large contingent of South Americans. So there's something to, to learn about making sure you do a language at school. Um, but I was fascinated by that side of it. So I travelled quite extensively and spoke to a lot of football people. LMA asked me to do a report. So that had me speaking to all the football league managers and uh, visiting various clubs and I had good friends, Tottenham just down the road and Arsenal, good people. 
um, who are very loyal friends, Charlie. And you need you, you find out who your friends are, by the way, in this situation. I'm sure every manager or coach will tell you the same. Mm. But you do find out who your friends are. So I'll always phone up, you know, you spoke about Chris Wilder, your club, Sheffield United. What a fantastic job. You just drop a text just to let them know that you're aware of the situation and, you know, what, what you think. And that type of thing, you find out your friends very, very quickly. But I kept myself busy. But I've got to say, after a year, uh, people say, oh, it's fantastic. You can go and play golf. You know, you can go walking. And I've got to say, Joe, you sit there. And I'm an early bird. I've always been early. And you sit there in the morning and you're going, so it's eight o'clock and uh, I've had my coffee and uh, the dog's been for like four walks already. Yeah, now what? <laughs> what do I do? Now? Yeah, my yeah. dog's going to be saying no more, please, you know. But it's like, what do you do? And I have to, me personally, I have to have something to focus on. So yeah. that I didn't, again, didn't deal with. I could see myself not dealing with that very well. So I sympathise and empathise. I fully understand the mental side of, of many people suffering in that situation. Would you advise then to kind of throw yourself into something, to give yourself a focus, to have routine? And it sounds like, you know, you took that, but then you went and learned more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my, everyone's different, you know, how you deal with it. Everyone's different. I appreciate that, but there has to be some generic traits. And I think you have to keep yourself occupied. You have to have a, feel you have a worth when you're up in the morning. I like to know that when you go to bed, you know, you, the day's been worthwhile. You've done something. Uh, and, and for me, you produce something. And that's really, really important. So going to Seattle, you know, you go there, there's that feeling of, I want to get involved. I want to do something, you know, but also you're learning. You might be learning how not to do it. You might be learning that I'd never do that. But you're seeing how other clubs do certain things and you, you're always picking up something. You'll meet one good contact. You know, I spoke to, I was in Seattle, for example, and you may not remember him, Alan Hinton, the old Derby player, used to wear the white boots. When I was a kid growing up, Alan Hinton, George Best, wore the white boots, while Alan Ball wore the white boots. This guy comes up to me in a bar in Seattle and says, I'm Alan Hinton. Wow. And he's been there for X number of years with his wife, had a fantastic dinner, great chatting to him about different things. And But you meet people, really interesting people, and that allowed you to get your story across. He phoned someone for me in the MLS. They contacted me. An interview followed purely by meeting him in the bar. Mm. So, you know, it really is a village football, Charlie. But I, I just found you've got, to, you've got to have a purpose to your day, yeah. I think, for me personally. And to sit there and twiddle your thumbs, I think I, I fully understand. I'm very lucky. You know, I'm very, very fortunate. I've paid the mortgages. I'm not saying an arrogant way. I'm saying I'm older and I've paid the mortgage and, and I've got no bills like that. People who have debts to pay and are not working, are twiddling their thumbs, I can only imagine the, the pain and the suffering they can be going through. Yeah, and I think that it's, you know, you said about, well, that's what is right for me. And I think it, there is a commonality. Like I'm somebody that also needs to work, needs needs to be busy. Um, I'm not very good at twiddling my thumbs. The thing I wanted to pick up on you before I forget, I've just written, scribbled it down, is we were talking about socials and then I kind of wanted to talk about Nottingham Forest with you and then we kind of went that way. And um, what would your advice be then in terms of social media to your players? Just picking up back on that because I wanted to make sure I asked you. Mm-hmm. I think just be honest with them, the same as communicating with the fans as we discussed earlier. You know, you can have a good performance, score two goals, win a game of football 2-0, and you get some lovely, lovely comments. The same people will batter you a week later. Mm. So uh, my, I'm just saying to players, if you expose yourself to that social media platform, and that may be the world that you currently live in, please understand the implications. As I say, you get some very good people on there, don't get me wrong, but there is a small minority who can absolutely destroy an individual. And as I say, I'm older with thicker skin, but I, I think very long and hard about the young players mm. uh, and, the, and, and the consequences of them reading some of the dri- drivel and bile that they receive. So for me, if you are going to go on it, 
please understand that there will be consequences to it. And I think if you can be honest with the, with the players and the staff, then it's their decision they're made after that. Yeah. I think one of the things I, I heard, which was great as well, is like if you're going to take the praise, then you've got to almost understand that there will be the backlash. So the praise isn't necessarily real if that makes sense because it's praise from somebody that you don't know and also abuse that somebody you don't know so if you you kind of just level it then you won't kind of take oh my gosh somebody's praising oh my god somebody slagged me off um and know that it's actually your own surroundings and the people that know you and i want to talk to you about management as well obviously um in terms of how you manage players um because i've discussed this with a few different managers and a few different people and I'm trying to think how to put it in a conversation where they were talking, this was from some players and a manager, they were talking about how some managers really lack empathy and then they don't get the best out of the players and they kind of man manage from like a really high level. What do you think is the best way and what do you do in terms of your players? Is there that, that understanding and that lack of empathy for who they are as individuals and how important is it to address the psychology and mental health side of things? Um, I think it's vitally important. I think paramount importance, China, and honestly, I think uh, I can only I can only learn from my my education, so to speak, in the city, um, and how my boss would treat us in that pressurised environment. We were human beings, you know, absolutely human beings. He knew that if you were struggling, and you know, for me personally, I can deal with all the pressure at work, but if I have a domestic situation, I find it very very hard. So my boss would recognise if there's a problem or something, and I've always tried to take that in. Everyone, there's a generic approach in terms of discipline for the squad, you know, timekeeping, rules, etc. respect how we speak to each other. Very, very important, but generic. And then there's the individual approach where everyone's needs are different. Uh, and the guy that's got three kids or a young baby or has a slept well or this type of thing, yet the 36-year-old compared to the 21-year-old and how, you know, his loading might need to be different. He might need that day off. But don't just give him a day off explain to him why you're doing it and the age that make him feel really good and then chat to the other guys about why you're doing it. So there's something like, why has he got a day off? So they remove all doubts and just, you know, they, they know that you've got their back. And I've always taken that into how I manage people. I speak to them as I would my son, um, you know, try and treat them fairly. Honestly, I would do. Um, but I'm very, very big on respect. I'm massive on respect. So if, for example, the training session's bad in the morning, I've got no problem. You knock on my door, Charlie, and going, Gaff, I didn't, I didn't understand that session at all. And I probably would have put my hand up already and gone, that didn't work. I think the respect, how we speak, you know, how we speak to each other. I wouldn't have a, a player be rude to a staff member, but likewise, I wouldn't have a staff member talk talk down in the whole world to, to a player. I'm not sounding like a holier than now. We're in a competitive men's, you know, football environment, but we've got to have that level of respect. Absolutely. And if we break that line, so I think the whole environment falls apart. So mm-hmm. for me, vitally important but you have to understand everyone's individual needs and requirements. Mm. And how much do you think mindset plays into football? Um, again, I spoke to various different people. Um, Eric Dyer was saying about Josie Mourinho being like one of the men- the strongest mentally that he's worked with and how psychology plays into your game. I'm, I'm always aware, um, how can I put it? If you're with a kids team, take this the right way. If you're an under 15 team and you give the old, you know, as a youth coach and you give, you're playing it before a cup final or a, a tournament, you can give the rah, rah, rah message and they all love it and they're fine. <laughs> but as they mature, they've been through that. Many, most of the players have been through that academy system. So therefore you can't just give it the rah, you, they want more than that. You've got to give them some substance and, and what it means. And so for me, I think long and hard before speaking to players. 
it's not an off-the-cuff one, really. Sometimes it can be, of course. But in general, you've got to think about what message you're trying to convey here. And these are these are men. They're, yes, they're sporting athletes, but they're men. And they're not kids. And they need to understand your message. You have to be consistent. You have to show integrity, understanding all the things you just spoke about. So I think I think for me, that's that mindset is so important. What we're trying to achieve. So for us now at QPR... Some people, I've heard some people say, oh, yeah, but many, very often players mid-table, they're on the beach already. What a shocking statement. That's like saying you're in a bank and you've made, you made your budget by September, therefore don't trade the rest of the year. Mm. Absolute nonsense, Charlie. So for me, it's that mindset of what can we achieve? How strong can we be? Where do we finish? How's that tears up for next season? How do we evolve as a squad of players? All the time I'm thinking about this. So the mindset is huge for me, but you've got to be consistent and appreciate their men. So it can't be this childlike message. It has to have meaning and substance. And I hope very much they can take that on board. Mm. There's so much that you've talked to us about. It's been absolutely brilliant. One thing I do want to ask you is, is there anything that you would say to anyone that's finding things difficult at the moment or that's struggling? And I think specifically for, you know, I think it's so great that we've got you on because I really want to make sure that, you know, you've, you've been so open and that we send the message that men can be open and an older man can be open. We can have these conversations and we can have honest conversations and we can feel these things and you can feel crap and you can make mistakes. And is there anything that you would, uh, I don't know, in terms of advice, give to anyone that's finding things tough right now and struggling that's helped you through in your past that we haven't covered? Yeah, I think very much so. It's going to sound very obvious. I apologise for that, but it's very, very important to me is you've got to speak to someone. I don't mean you pick up a, a specialist or a psychologist if it's there for you. Of course you do that. But for me personally, it was just having good people you can speak to. And, and that was, you know, when things are, when you're struggling and you're having a tough day, you need to speak to someone. Uh, and don't be, you know, you, you adopt this male suit of armour and I'm fine and everything else. I'm not, I'm quite mentally strong, I think. Um you know, I've never had to speak to any, you know, to a specialist or any. I'm very fortunate in that respect. I've been through a very intense pressurised industry for a long, long time now. Um, so I feel I've got a coat of armour that I can wear. But there are times that the, the, the period you reflected on or touched on, Charlie, the out-of-work period, I found it really hard. And you need to speak to people then. And you need to tell them why you're finding it hard. Don't just say, yeah, I'm fine. There are no worries. I'm all good. Because it's not enough. You put the phone down and you feel even worse because you had, you've had an opportunity that you've bypassed to really speak to someone. So all I would say is you find out who your friends are in football and, and, and high-pressure environments. So use your friends. And it may be two people. maybe one person, Charlie. It may be 10. I don't care. But there's someone there you can just chat to. Uh, and just get some off your chest. I found that really useful, you know, and I've got really good friends and people I've worked with, people like Davey Weir and Frank McParlin, the top, top people, and a lot of other good people as well, friends, friends in Scotland who, are, who became close associates. So you can phone them up and, and you can talk about it, and you have to, because if you don't, it do get to a point, touch what I've, I've never been there, but you, I'm sure you get to a point, Charlie, where the adverse effects are so great, it's going to have serious consequences. Yeah. And I think it's such an important message. It's not simple at all because it's actually really hard. And you made me smile with the I'm fine because I think as I've got older, it's something I've learned because, you know, you said the male suit of armour, which I think is definitely there. And I think I'm Northern and I think that can sometimes be the thing as well as in like wear the suit of armour. I'm fine, I'm fine. And I definitely did that as a habit from a young age and it's something I've learned. And when you said, you know, if you put the phone down and you've said, I'm fine when you're not, it almost makes you feel even more like, uh, like isolated, but also as in, well, you know, 
I could have been soothed there and it prevents you from being soothed. Yeah, it does. I think <laughs> you look at your own, your own personality, your own character traits. So I, for one, Charlie, will never discuss my business in public. So how can I put it down? If I have a row with my wife, for example, I don't go to work and go, oh, shock a row. I've got colleagues who come in and go, oh, and give me every detail of the row with their wife or their daughter or their son. <laughs> I'm not that, mate. I'll always sound fine. You know, if I've not been well, I had a problem with a health issue. No, I'm fine. Thank you. I keep my business very much myself. I've always been that way. But people say to me, you know, typical you never say anything but that I don't mind that side of it but when it gets to the point of as it got to in that period where you are frustrated and you're angry and you're saying this is not right and you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs I think at that point you have to have a, a reliable confidant that you can chat to as I say some people need to go to psychologists and whatever else I just needed someone and I did I had to cut really good friends who I just got off and I might have an hour on the phone and get off and go oh that's better oh yeah it's <laughs> almost like a relief right and then I'll phone back and go, sorry about that. I probably moaned for the last hour and I'd laugh. But at least I was able to do that. I knew I was better for that conversation. And there's some good people out there, Charlie, yeah. good friends who can really help you. Yeah, there really is. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been brilliant speaking to you. I've absolutely loved it. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Very nice. Great speaking to Charlie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks all for listening. There are loads more episodes on our Apple and Spotify page, including the likes of Justin Langer, Chris Robshaw, Elise Christie, and loads, loads more. And remember to visit sportinglife.com, the home of expert analysis and insight for racing, football, golf, and much more. And if you are struggling, like Mark said, please do reach out and speak to a friend. But if you feel like you can't speak to anyone, you can call charities such as Mind, the Samaritans, and Sporting Mind. They are there to help and they do understand. Take care. Thanks again, Mark, and we'll speak again soon. Charlie, all the best.